I am really excited about what we're talking about today. When we uh, launched this series, I, I dare you, the premise was this idea that there are some things available for you that God's called you to, but it may take some action and you may have to get challenged to get back into the dreams that God has for you. And what a great way to start uh, the year. So we opened with an idea of everybody has a dream for their life, a God-sized dream. And I, I just dared you to believe in that dream again and chase that dream. Then we talked about investing in the next generation. And and I dared you to invest in the next generation. And we talked about how the scripture gives us an outline of how we can live our life on the inside and on the outside in such a way that the generations that follow us see that and can model that behavior. And we talked about that. And then last week, I dared you to fall in love again and to, and to, uh, to go back and love the way the scriptures asked us and invited us to love. And we talked about how that was the landing zone of the whole message that Jesus uh, coached us into was that we would know how to love that way and that people would know we were followers of him if we loved that way. And so today, this message, I've been excited about it for a while. And when I first kind of outlined this whole series, this message was called, I dare you to get emotionally healthy. Yeah. Some of you are like, uh-oh. I didn't think you'd show up if I put that out in the bulletin. So I had to move it around a little bit. But, uh, but so you know where we're going. I, 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 so we called it, I dare you to move again. Because here's the thing I know. If you are stuck emotionally in how you're thinking, then you're not gonna move forward into what God's called you to for your life. And so today I'm gonna dare you to move again. Now, <clears throat> I was thinking about how, uh, how the voices that we get in our head so impact our life and what we believe about ourselves and what we think about we, ourselves and how we feel about what we can and cannot do. <clears throat> when I was youth pastoring, I was in Spokane and we had this, uh, this altar time at the end of a Wednesday night. And we were talking about how every person has a call in their life that can do something based on how God sees them, that there's potential in every single person. And one girl came forward, not just one, but one particular girl. I'll call her Lucy, in case she listens to this someday. And Lucy came forward, and I'm at the altar, and I'm praying for kids, I'm praying for kids, and I look over at Lucy, and she's booger crying. You know booger crying, right? There's crying that's like cute, like, <laughs> And then there's, and the wet works are happening and, and you're just crying. And she's up here and she's crying. Shoulders are shaking. She's just crying. And I go to move towards her. And then I notice that she's like really booger crying. And I have this moment of like, maybe I let her pull herself together a little bit before I go in and get, you know, cause this shirt's just going to be booger fied and it's going to be over. <laughs> and then I'm like, no, we just go in there. Right. I grab one of the gals that, that was on the team and I said, let's go, let's pray for Lucy. And I go to Lucy and I throw my arm over her and I'm like, Lucy, what's going on? What can I pray for you for? And she looks at me and I forget the way she said this. She goes, you keep talking about how I can do anything and that God has a purpose and a plan for my life. She goes, no one believes I can do anything. No one in my life believes I can do anything. And I let her begin. What do you mean? She says, well, <laughs> you know, she, she thought she was overweight. She's perfect. There's nothing wrong with her. She's like, people think I'm just fat. I'm ugly. I can't do things. I'm like, who's that? And she's my family, my friends. And I was like, listen, there's only one voice you need to listen to. But isn't it true? We hear voices when you think about yourself, when you think about your life, there are voices. What are the voices that have impacted you? Whose voices do you hear? Is there a coach, a teacher, a parent, a peer, a coworker? Maybe it's your own voice that's rattling around in your head when you're thinking, oh, maybe, maybe I'll take this, maybe I'll do this next thing. And all of a sudden that voice rises up. Come on now, you know the voice. Oh, don't do that, that's too risky. Oh, you know you're not that person. Oh, they probably don't like you. Oh, they didn't show up, right? The first time something, something goes a little bit wrong. Oh, it's because of, and that voice starts to get in there. And here's the thing, those voices will determine your destiny. Whose voice you listen to will determine your destiny. They'll determine your destiny. So I was thinking about who gets to be the voice that's in my head? 
And how do I deal with the voice that's in my head? How do I get emotionally healthy? How do I deal with the voice and decide the voice that's in my head? Who gets to tell me the truth about me? Who gets to do that? Who gets to tell me my value and what I'm able to do? And here's a very simple way to determine who gets to decide how valuable and what something is and isn't worth. The creator of that thing gets to decide that, right? You make something, you get to decide how valuable it is. You get to decide what it's worth. The purchaser gets to decide how valuable something is. If I want to buy something, you got a truck for sale, right? You say, I want $1,000 for it. I'm like, I'll give you $200. You're like, I want $1,000. I'm like, well, I'm only going to give you $200. Who gets to decide how valuable? I'm not, if I won't purchase it at that price, it's not that valuable, right? The purchaser gets to decide how valuable it is. You know who else gets to decide how valuable something is? The owner, Right? Maybe I didn't create it, but I own it. I get to decide how valuable something is. So let me ask you this. Who created you? Who purchased you? Scripture says, I'm not my own. I was bought at a price. Who's the owner? Because that's the only voice that gets to tell you how valuable you is or you isn't. That's the only voice. So if there is another voice rattling around in your heart, in your head, trying to convince you what you're capable of or who you are or how valuable you are, then I don't know how else to say that, but you got to put the hand up, show me, come on a little of that firepower and say, "Uh uh-uh, that ain't the voice I'm listening to. I'm using bad grammar to get your attention. That ain't the voice. You don't have permission to speak into my life that way. Who gets to determine my value? You're not my creator. You don't own me. You didn't pay for me. But here's the problem. This is where so many of us get stuck. We get stuck in this battle for our mind, for what we think we're able to do, for what we think our value is, for what we think we're able to go forward in. And we don't realize that that is a battle for our life. We don't realize we're in that battle. I am convinced that we miss out on the idea that this is the real fight for our life. Because here's the thing, your thoughts direct your life. Your thoughts direct your life. And some of you are like, Pastor Mike, that's self-help nonsense. Okay, I'll take you to the scripture here in just a minute. You can challenge me. That's fine. Bring it. I got email. Delete, delete, delete. I'm not thinking about that. No. <laughs> right? But your thoughts direct your life. They do. How you think about something determines how you behave in that situation. How you think about yourself determines how you feel and act in that area. Your thoughts determine and direct your life. That's why Paul is so strong and the scriptures are so strong that we have to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 12, verse two says that this, he says, hey, don't conform, don't get shaped, don't get molded, don't let this determine what you think about. Don't conform any longer, what? To the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your what? Of your mind. What's Paul saying? He's like, there's a pattern, there's a system, and the world wants to press into you like a cookie cutter to tell you how to think and how to act and how to behave. Don't conform to that. We are the people that get transformed starting up here because if you get the right mind, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, I don't know how many conversations I've had in X number of years, what, 18 years of doing ministry stuff that have all started with, I don't know God's will. And the first step in that conversation is, well, are you thinking right about who you are and who God is? Or is your idea of God's will have to fit into some pattern that the world has laid out for you? Whose voice are you listening to? Because you're not gonna hear God's will or know God's will or be able to test and approve his good, pleasing, and perfect will if you got an old mind, if you got damage in your mind. You see, change in your life happens when change in your thinking happens. That's why there's such a strong battle going on for your mind. 
going on in your mind. Here, Proverbs says it this way. I love this. Proverbs 4.23. Solomon, wisest man that ever lived, says, hey, be careful what you think because your thoughts run your life. Be careful what you think because your thoughts run your life. I think you don't like me. My whole countenance towards you changes. All my interactions towards you changes. I think I'm not very good at things. I think I'm not whatever, special, love, whatever. Be careful what you think because your thoughts run your life. Here's the thing. Paul implores us, get your mind right. Transform your mind. Solomon says, guard your mind. Careful what you think it runs your life. Here's the thing I want you to catch. We don't, I don't from the platform just talk about Satan all the time. He doesn't get too much credit from me because he doesn't get to control and dominate the life of a believer. He cannot control the life of a believer. You have protection. The Holy Spirit guards your heart in that. But here is what Satan would love to do because he can't control you, but he can mess with your mind. He can challenge you to think wrong. I mean, that's his game plan from the beginning, right? He starts off with, did God really say What's he doing? He's challenging from Eve onwards our mind. He's challenging how we think about who we are, who God designed us to be, and who God is, and how God feels about us. It's his go-to move to go after your mind. Why? Because your thoughts will run your life. And if you give him real estate in your mind, it will control your life. And ultimately, it'll keep you from moving into your dreams and into your destiny and into God's plan for you. It'll keep you stuck. So in order to get moving, you've got to win the battle for your mind. You've got to acknowledge that you're in a battle for your mind and that the attack is for your mind. Because if I can get your mind, I can get you going whatever direction I want you going. So there's a battle from your mind. So I'm going to give you just a couple principles about this battle for your mind. And then we're going to land on one example of how to, how to walk through that. But here's the thing. It comes down to this. The first thing you've got to do to keep moving to win that battle for your mind is you've got to free your mind from lies. Right? Because the author of lies, the father of lies, is working hard to get you to bite like a fisherman with a power bait, right? To get you to bite on some lies. Wants you to believe some lies. Let me ask you this. What lies are you believing right now? I bet you could even identify that some of the things you're believing are lies, but they're still there and you're still believing them. You could easily, you could identify. I know that's not true. I know that's not the thing, but it's still there and you're still battling that. Again, Satan doesn't have control over you. So the strategy is to get you thinking wrong. Here's some of the ways that this works itself out. One of the things he does to kind of come after your mind is try to get you to focus on the wrong things. So Romans Chapter eight, here's a good example. <clears throat> Verse five, it says, Paul says, hey, those who are dominated by the sinful nature, they do what? They think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit, they think about things that are pleased the Spirit. Look at this. So letting your sinful nature control your minds leads to death. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and to peace. What is he saying? He's saying, there is a battle going on for your mind. And if your mind is consumed with a belief that nothing is out there beyond the sinful nature of what's going on, you'll get stuck in there and it will lead you to death. He's saying, but there's another way to do it. You can believe what the spirit says about who you are and that in your mind leads to life and peace. Now you've seen this at work in people. You've seen people who are haunted by worry who are haunted by stress, who are haunted by fear, even irrational fear sometimes, and it's running around in their mind. But what if? What if that job goes away? What if he doesn't love me anymore? She doesn't love me anymore? What if I displease them? What if this? What if that? They're in this what if fear mode, constantly letting their mind be haunted. You know people who, who are constantly obsessing with sinful nature stuff constantly letting their mind go to things that they know are leading them to death. But then you know other people who they've experienced in their life what you think if you experienced it, you'd just give up. 
You're like, you've experienced hell on earth, but somehow their attitude is still okay. Their heart is still right. They still have some kind of godly optimism. And they have that spirit that says, though he slay me, yet I'll still serve him. And you're like, how in the world are you holding it together when you got the health prognosis that you did, when you got the job prognosis that you did, when you got the relational prognosis that you did, and you didn't fall? Why? The difference is who's controlling their mind. Who's their mind given to? Is their mind given to a sinful nature that believes the worst and moves to fear and terror and doubt? Or is it given over to the spirit, believing that the God of the universe is in control and can and will do what he said he's gonna do? Do you see that the battle's for your mind? If he can get your mind, he'll take you wherever he wants you to go. Or <laughs> this, is a, this is a great one. Second Corinthians chapter two, Paul's talking to people that he loves and he's like, listen, if you forgive anyone, I'll also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. Look at this. In order that Satan might not what? Outwit us. For we are not unaware of his schemes. What is he saying? He's saying there is a scheme. There is a mental attack. There is a cerebral thing going on. And one of the ways that Satan does that is he gets you hung up on unforgiveness. He gets you hung up on damage and baggage that is connected to somebody else's behavior. And if he can get you hung up processing that, dwelling on that, thinking only about that, he is literally working to outwit you. Some of you are like, well, you don't understand what happened. I, I'm just telling you that is a battle for your mind how you think about that situation, how you process that information. And Paul says, hey, even if just you forgive them, I'll forgive them. I'm not carrying any of this baggage because I recognize that Satan is fighting for real estate in my mind and I'm letting that go. I don't have the time here on this side of eternity to spend dwelling on this issue of unforgiveness. So I'm letting that go because there's a scheme at play and he's trying to get real estate in my mind. That's what he's saying. Now let me go a little one more step further and then we'll, we'll push through. Some of you, the person that you haven't forgiven isn't even another person, it's still you. And the cycle of trapped, the, the scheme that you're in is a constant, consistent coming back to your own mistakes and being unwilling to forgive yourself and you are trapped in your mind believing lies because you think you deserve the consequences come on now, of your mistakes. And Paul's like, Satan's scheming. He's scheming. So here's what his scheme looks like. It's a pretty straightforward. He wants to work through guilt and he wants to work unforgiveness into your life. And he knows if he can get those things operating, that you'll stay stuck. You won't move into your calling. You won't move into emotional health. You won't move into your right identity. You'll stay stuck because you'll be dealing with guilt. You'll be processing uh, sin stuff and mistakes. You'll be frustrated or you'll be dealing with unforgiveness and you'll give that real estate in your mind and then you will remain stuck. That's the plan. That's the game plan. That's how he's working. Paul says he's got a scheme. There it is. I know this happens, this happens in my family, right? It just takes one person. We got someone in our extended family and here's the thing. She has just come out and said, I am not forgiving this person, right? All it takes is one. One player in the scheme who's like, I no matter what, I am not forgiving. And then you watch the ripples of relational damage and the ripples of impact. And other minds are like, I'm trying to forgive, but they're not forgiving. And it just, and Satan's just standing back going, yeah is working like no don't give him that real estate why because what happens you get stuck you get stuck you're not moving into the identity and calling that god has for you you get stuck because remember your thoughts run your life that's why proverbs says be careful what you think because your thoughts run your life so how does god counter that how does the scriptures what does the truth of god's word do that so god's plan is this simple truth plus freedom equals, hey, I'm moving. Truth plus freedom equals, hey, I'm moving. A steady diet of truth and freedom. That's how God keeps you in your true identity. <laughs> it's funny. So the goal is, 
I have to now, if I have to free my mind from lies, I have to feed my, lie, my mind with truth. I have to feed my mind with truth. Listen, some of us have minds that are severely malnourished in the truth department. You're malnourished in the truth department. You are missing out on truth that is available to you all the time. It's kind of, uh, it's kind of reminds me of uh, this story about an old couple that save up because they're really excited. Their dream is to go on a cruise. And so they save up, they save up, they save up, and they're very frugal, they're very responsible. They don't want to, you know, they're, they're not over the top, and they're able to finally go on this cruise. And they're very excited. But because they're very frugal, they're very responsible, they pack like snacks, and they pack all the kind of stuff. They're just like, we're going to be, you know, really responsible, really responsible. And they get on this cruise, and they show up. It's beautiful and exciting, and it's great. And they see that there's this giant formal dinner. And the husband goes, yeah, we're not paying for that. And they're like, okay. So they go back to the room and they eat their snacks. And the next day they see kind of how the, how the big meals are all coming and everybody's gathering for their meals. They're like, listen, we're responsible. We brought snacks. We're going to go. And they start, go back in the room and they eat the snacks. Eventually, eventually a, a member of the crew comes to find them and says, hey, we'd love for you guys to join us for dinner. We'd love for you guys to come out and eat with us. And they're like, no, we're okay. We're okay. We're okay. Well, two or three days in, they've consumed all their snacks. And now they're starting to look pretty bad. And finally, the captain goes back to find them and says, guys, we'd love for you. How come you're not joining us for dinner? We'd love for you to join us for dinner. And finally, the husband goes, listen, we just didn't prepare. I don't have enough budget. We're, we're, we can't do that. And he looks at him and surprised. He goes, don't you know that that's included? Don't you know the food is provided as part of the adventure that you're on? We want you to be with us. And there's the thing. Don't you know that truth is provided? Don't you know that you have access to a meal that will sustain your mind with truth time and time again? But here's what we do. We eat crumbs from a meal that was served over the weekend. So you come to church, you eat like kings, and then you live off crumbs all week long. And then something happens and you miss a week. And now you're starving by week two. And then you show up and you're like, I really need to eat again. But if I eat too much, I'll get sick because it's been so long. And Jesus is like, hey, just keep feeding yourself. It's provided. I've included it in the package. It's available for you. And you're like, oh, I don't want to do, you know, I don't want to join everybody and eat the meal and get stronger and have that. And, and every, all the, everyone's looking at you like, why not? You're wasting away. You've got to free your mind with some truth. So let me give you some truth out of here. Here's a truth. God already knows that you're going to disobey and that you were going to disobey. So his mercy was already in place to cover that. He already knew you were going to disobey. So his mercy was already in place to cover that. What are you talking about, Pastor Mike? Well, I'd read to you Romans chapter 12, this amazing truth of transforming your mind. But where do we, how does he get there? How does Paul get there? Well, he starts in chapter 11 by saying this. He says, hey, for God, verse 32, chapter 11, for God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Wait, what? That's a weird scripture to put up there. What are you talking about? I'm talking about this is not a performance exam. God already knew and knows that you are going to blow it. He sees through time. He is not bound in the moment. He knew and knows every mistake already. And he is okay. That's weird for you to hear a pastor say. He's already okay with that because his mercy is already in place so that it will cover it. You are not stuck because you messed up. That's a lie. So what does he say? He says, so that, he's, he, so that he may have mercy on them all. And then comes this beautiful doxology where he says, oh, verse, uh, verse 33, how the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgment. Paul's like, look at how amazing God is. He was, who has known the mind of the Lord or been his counselor? He's like, who are you to tell God how to think? Who's ever given to God that God should repay him? From him and through him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Then chapter 12. Therefore, see, because of God's incredible mercy towards us, therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of what? God's what? Look at that. 
Therefore, that means because of how amazing God is, because you don't get to tell God how to think, because he's already known that you've been given over to make mistakes and his mercy's in place. Because of that, in view of his mercy, now you get to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is how you spiritually worship. So don't conform any longer to the patterns of this world. Do you see the context now? Why do we not conform to the patterns of this world? Because in view of his mercy. Because the world wants you to tell you his mercy isn't there. The world wants you to think that his mercy is not enough. The world wants you to think that you've messed up and now you're in trouble. And Paul's saying, in view of his mercy, who already knew you were gonna mess up and provided mercy and grace for it, in, in that view, stop thinking that way. Be transformed, knock it off in the renewing of your mind. And then guess what happens? You're able to test and approve what his will is good, pleasing and perfect will. That's the recipe. So Paul's articulating that. So, so I gotta give you an example of how this actually looks because I think a lot of it is theory right now. So we'll just bring it to the real. And uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, I want you to get them out now and go to John chapter 21 because um, you, you'll need to look at your actual Bible if you can because it'll make more sense if you do. <clears throat> In John chapter 21, we meet a guy, Peter, again. Now, Peter's awesome. I love Peter. My favorite guy's in the, in the whole story because he's kind of the, I just connect with guys who get a little excited and do the wrong thing. And that's kind of Peter's whole story, right? I really want to do the right thing, but I'm really excited. And oops, I got a little ahead of myself and did the wrong thing. Like, I can relate to that kind of weakness. I'm like, yeah, I like Peter, <laughs> right? I like Peter. And so in Peter's story, we see a bunch of cool things, but we're going we're gonna to get into a specific spot uh, in, his, in his story. So here's kind of what happens to Peter. Peter's fishing. It's about three years before what we're going to read right now. He's with Andrew. They're out on a boat. They're fishing. And Jesus sees them, and he utters two amazing words. He says, follow me. You're out here fishing, but follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Peter's like, men? Haven't tried that. Sounds like good eating. Let's go. No, I'm teasing. Just seeing if you're paying attention. <laughs> he was fishing. Now he's going to be fishing for men. So Jesus and Peter, Peter goes on this three-year journey with Jesus. And he has highs and lows, and it's amazing. He gets to see 5,000 people get fed, get fed through a miracle. He gets to see Lazarus come out of the grave. He gets to see uh, people healed. The blind receive their sight. People walk. He gets to hear Jesus. He gets to go on this adventure and be in the inner circle of this group. And he's connected and close to Jesus. He's the one who first reveals and understands who Jesus really is, that he's not just a wise teacher, but that he's the Messiah. Messiah. He's the son of God come for all of them. He's the first one to articulate that and put that together. He is Peter. He gets to walk with him. He's out on the water walking. That's Peter. So Peter has this moment. They get to the upper room, the end of the story, you know, right? When we talk about it every time we do communion and Jesus has this moment with the disciples. Jesus is aware of what's about to happen next. He knows they're going to go to the garden. He knows they're going to get arrested. He knows that the brutality of the abuse leading up to the cross, and then ultimately the cross is about to happen. And he's trying to articulate to his closest crew, including Peter, that this is about to happen. And he's warning them so they don't fall away. And Peter is the one, he's braggadocious. He's like, hey, I don't care what everybody else does. I'll never leave you. And Jesus says, hey, before the rooster crows tonight, you're going to deny me three times. Peter's like, Psh. you know the story. Jesus is arrested. You've seen the passion. He's beaten for us. And Peter's in the crowd, sees what's happening, and shock kicks in and fear kicks in. And leave it to a middle school girl, comes up to him and is like, hey, Aren't you one of the guys that was with that guy up there that's getting the tar beat out of him? Peter's like, Psh, I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, we're like, we're like six hours away from him. I'm just saying, I don't care what everybody else does. I'll never leave you. The little, the little girl looks at him again. She's like, I hear your accent. You're not from around here. Surely you're one of the Galileans. You must be one of those. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And then another person says, I think I saw you in the garden. Weren't you there in the garden? And Peter's like, I don't know the man. The crow call, crawls. And then 
Luke chapter 22 says Jesus, in the moment that the, that the rooster crows, Jesus looked and made eye contact with Peter. And can you imagine the moment you just did the thing you said you'd never do and you're locked eyes on Jesus? You can imagine Peter's state, his emotional state. You can imagine the battle going on for his mind. Death, the resurrection three days later, Peter runs to the grave when he hears. And Jesus says, hey, go to this place and the spirit's gonna come. They go to the place, nothing's happening. And Peter's just kind of hanging with the group and he starts fishing again. He starts fishing again. And we have this beautiful picture of, uh, of the, the disciples, seven of them are out there and they start fishing and they're not catching anything. As a matter of fact, they're fishing hard. They're trying to catch. I don't know how hard, I'm not a fisherman. I, I, I grew up in the city and like we didn't have fish. It just wasn't a thing, it was just cement and lights. Um, <laughs> there wasn't like water and nice places to do that. But I don't know how hard you have to fish that the scripture reveals, and John's writing this, so John's hilarious. He's like, Peter was fishing so hard he took out his garments and he was in his drawers, right? I don't know how hard you're fishing that you're sweating at a level. I don't know what kind of fishing. Someone who fishes maybe have to tell me how hard you have to be going. But Peter was going hard. He did everything full blast. He's fishing so hard that he is literally in his drawers and they have caught nothing. And then from the shore, they hear this voice and says, hey, Friends, have you caught any fish? Now, I don't know. Here's what I do know. I know when I'm not doing well and someone points out that I'm not doing well, the first thing that comes out of me is not usually kind. It's like, what do you think? I'm in my draws. It's not working. That's not what happens, though. The voice says, hey, throw your nets on the other side. So they throw their nets over one more time. It's like, here we go. And John, who's a fisherman, wants you to know they catch 153 fish in one shot. I love it because every fisherman wants you to know, right? It was this big. John's like, this is how many fish there were in there. They realize that voice is Jesus and the scriptures tell us that Peter just throws his robe back on, jumps in the water and runs to Jesus. They get to the, they get to the end uh, of the shore and Jesus has a barbecue going already with fish on it, which I love because he wasn't fishing, but he's got fish, right? <laughs> There's already fish there. And then he tells them, hey, you guys bring your fish that you just caught, and I just imagine Jesus winks, right? You've been out here all day with nothing but the fish that you guys caught. There's a whole sermon right in there of just the idea that we're out working our tail off, but as soon as we are on page with God and listening to his voice and doing what he calls us, then success comes, and he's like, hey, good job, and you're like, wait, who did a good job here, right? The good job was I just listened. That's the good job. It's not how many fish I caught, but he's like, bring some of that fish you caught, and they eat, and they have breakfast, and then you get to verse 15, and there's something, if you have your Bibles out, if you got them out, especially if you have a paper Bible, like an actual Bible, it says something in verse 15. There's a title there. There's a section title there, and it says something. What does it say? It says, Jesus did what to Peter? Reinstates. Well, that's a fascinating phrase. So if you have your Bibles out, I want you to get out a pen, and I'm gonna give you permission to do something here from your pastor. I want you to go to that word reinstates and I want you to cross that out. <gasps> Crossing out the Bible. Well, let me teach you a little bit something about the Bible here real quick. When the Bible was written by its original authors under the uh, uh, direction of the Holy Spirit under God's planning, they did not write chapters and verses. They wrote letters and history. They didn't write it in chapters and verses. The original text did not say chapter one, verse seven, chapter two, verse four. That was not part of the original scriptures, okay? The only book of the Bible that had that was Psalms because it was musical and you needed verses for songs. That's the only book that had that. All the other books didn't come that way. It was about 400 years after Jesus when they started compiling the scriptures this way that they were like, hey, it's really hard to take this massive book and tell everyone to go to the same place if we don't have, come on now, chapters and verses. And so they went in and began to add those things, but they're not part of the scripture. They're just tools to help you use the scripture well. Just like the original Bible didn't come in this particular cover, right? This isn't... The, this cover isn't spiritual. It's just a tool to hold the pages together so I can get access to the word and the truth of God. Does that make sense? So those numbers and those verses, they're just a tool. They're a good tool. 
But then about 1,200 years after Jesus, something else happened to the Bible. People were trying to make it easier for us to get around, and they started adding these titles to chapters and to sections. But those titles also aren't the Bible. They're just to help us find out. So if I were to say the prodigal son, you know the story that I'm talking about when I say the prodigal son. You know I'm in Luke 15, and you can get over there. Here's the problem is the scriptures never call him a prodigal son. The word of God never says there's a prodigal son. If that story was called the love of the father, you'd still go to the same place. But the whole story instead would be about this loving father instead of this wild son. Do you see the danger sometimes? And I'm not trying to tell you the Bible, but I'm just telling you that don't, it's a battle for your mind. I don't want you to think. So here's the problem. I was preparing this message and I'm looking at this chapter heading that says Jesus reinstates Peter. Here's the problem. If I get reinstated, that means I'm out. I don't need to be reinstated unless I'm out. Jesus never came and said, I'm now reinstating Peter. That's not in the text. Here's how reinstatement works. Like when I was, uh, when I was in high school, I worked a grocery job, and I got into an argument with the union guy. Uh, and it's a long story short, but uh, he was like, you can't do this thing at your job. And I was like, well, don't tell me how to live. I'll do whatever I want. And because uh, I was in high school, and that's what I did. And so I was like, well, I'm just going to do whatever I want. And I'm like, well, you can't do that. And I said, well, watch me do it. And uh, it wasn't bad or anything. I was ordering product for friends, that specialty items that they didn't carry regularly, and it wasn't breaking any rules. They just said, you personally can't do that. And I was like, well, I know the guy. So I just called him, and he did it. So it happened. So how you want to deal with that? And they're like, well, you're violating, you know, the contract. And I was like, well, watch me just not care about that. So I got banned from the union, right? And so since I got banned from the union, <laughs> I stopped paying them. And so they're like, listen, you can come back, but you have to pay to get back in and then you'll be reinstated. And that's how reinstatement works, right? Reinstatement happens because I'm out and now I have to do something to earn my way and prove that I belong back in. And if you read this story about Peter believing that somehow he's out and has to get his way back in, you miss the entire heart of Jesus in this passage. So we're going to cross that out. I'm going to read this to you just in the plain NIV English. And then I'm going to tell you what this passage says, okay? And then we'll, we'll almost done. So I'm in John chapter 21, beginning in verse 15. And it says, so they just finished eating, right? And Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, well, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, well, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He says, Peter was hurt. Because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Why is this passage a big deal? And I'll give you the rest of it in a second. Well, here's the thing you may not realize. Actually, the next series we do, I'm calling it the do nots. And it's all things Jesus was like, hey, I love you, but don't do this, right? And uh, we'll have some fun, and there'll be a whole bunch of, hey, don't do that. And it'll be, uh, it'll be a good series. But one of the big do nots, I think February 9th, I'm going to actually break this out a little bit, is in Matthew chapter 10. And one of the big do nots is this. He says, hey, whoever acknowledges me before men, I'll acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me, or some versions will say denies me before men, I'll deny him or disown him before my Father in heaven. That's a pretty big statement, Jesus is pretty clear that there is a connective tissue to you representing him on earth and being known by him in heaven. And so this is a big deal that Peter said, hey, I don't know that guy. Now, we'll get into this in a few weeks, but there's a lot of ways that we deny Jesus. Come on. Most of you, I would imagine, who have some relationship with Jesus, if I were to, to put you in almost any social situation and say, hey, hey, do you believe in Jesus? Most of you would say, well, yeah, yeah, no, I, yeah, I believe in Jesus. You wouldn't like verbally be like, oh, who's that guy? I don't know what you're talking about. Like, <laughs> most of you wouldn't do that, right? Most of you wouldn't do that. But how many ways do we send a message with our life that we really don't live for Jesus? Our actions, our words, our behaviors. But that's a whole other message. But here's the problem. There's one of these don't mess around pieces, and Peter knows this. So let's get back to reinstate. 
if this is a passage about reinstating Peter, do you love me is a horrible question to ask. That's not how you reinstate someone. Here's some questions that Jesus could have asked that would make way more sense if he's reinstating Peter. First one is this. Hey, do you realize what you've done? That's how we deal with someone who's out, right? Who's violated our system or our trust or our relationship, who's out now. We say, hey, do you realize what you've done? Or maybe he could have asked a second question, something like this. Are you sorry? Are you sorry? Are you sorry? We do this, right? Someone's done the wrong thing and we say, hey, are you sorry? Come on, parents. Say you're sorry. Say it. I don't care if you mean it or not. I need to hear the words. Right? I don't care if you even understand what you did. Say the words. I'll shake you. No, I'm just kidding. Right? Are you sorry? How about this? Do you know the process of restoration? Do you know that you're now for six months eliminated from being a disciple and we're gonna put you in counseling and uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna make sure that you go through a process of restoration so that I can reappoint you, reassign you to your mission? Those are rational, reasonable questions if I'm reinstating Peter. But Jesus isn't reinstating Peter. That's not what's happening in this text at all. Here's the thing that's fascinating. Jesus had already predicted that Peter was going to have this mess to clean up, that Peter was already going to be in this. Remember I told you, he said, you know, the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. So here's Peter and Jesus, Luke chapter 22. Jesus is talking to Peter and he says, listen, Simon, Simon, this is upper room, right? He's about to, he's about to tell him, you know, that, that you're, going to, you're going to betray me. He says, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that when he does, you won't blow it. I have prayed for you, Simon, that when Satan tempts you, when Satan tries to get in your mind, I've prayed for him that you won't make any more mistakes. I've prayed, Simon, that you'd live perfectly from this moment on, that you'd be clean and never get tempted again. He doesn't pray any of those things. That's not what's up there, is it? Here's the thing that's fascinating. I want you to hold on to this for a second. Jesus, up until this point, we have three years of his public ministry and he is batting a thousand in his prayer life. Can you imagine that? If we were batting 300, we'd be hall of famers, right? We'd be going down. People would be writing books about us. Like, it'd be amazing. If we were batting 300 and just like everything we pray. But here's Jesus. For three years, he gets everything he asked for in prayer. Everything. I need more fish. I got more fish. Lazarus, get up. Lazarus, get up. Jerry, it's your daughter. I got this. Go ahead. Everything he asked for in prayer, he gets. Everything, period. So here's Jesus, and he's praying for Peter, and he knows that Peter's going to blow it. He knows. And so he says, hey, I pray you don't blow it. No. He says, I've prayed for you. You're going to get sifted, but I've prayed that then, that when that happens, that what? That your faith may not fail. You see, here was the thing. Jesus seems woefully almost unconcerned with Peter's behavior. He's only concerned with his heart. He's only concerned that relationally they stay connected. He's only concerned that his faith maintains, that his mind doesn't believe that somehow they've been separated and sifted, that they're still connected. That's the only thing he's concerned for. And then he says, and when you've turned back, go strengthen your brothers. Why? Because he wants to make sure he doesn't lose track that he's designed for his mission that he can do for his whole life. That is incredible. That's an incredible truth. I don't know if you catch that. He is not concerned with his behavior. Why? Because religion will tell us our behavior is everything. Gotta get your behavior straight. Gotta get you working right. Gotta get you living right. Gotta get you doing the right things. And Jesus seems completely unconcerned that we're gonna get, he actually anticipates that we're gonna get sifted. We're gonna mess up. We're gonna struggle. We're gonna have, oh, I make the wrong choice, say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing. And he's like, but when that happens, Here's what my prayer is for you, that your faith doesn't fail and that you get up and go back and start moving again in the identity that you have in me. That's what he prays for. So let's go back to John. Reinstated. Because something else is happening in the text here that we're missing. 
If you were with us last week, you caught this whole conversation about different kinds of love. And this word for love that happens in this conversation shifts mid-conversation over and over again. And I got to tell you, again, battle for your mind. I read a lot of commentaries this week. And I was like, studying like crazy, right? And people disagree all over the place. So I'm just going to give you what the text says. What I can tell you is I read people time after time saying, well, you know, Peter said, did the wrong thing three times, so now he had to do the right thing three times. And I'm like, well, that's garbage. Because otherwise, I got to keep a running tally of every time I blow it and make sure I say I'm sorry enough time. I'm like, get out of here. People who wrote in the 1800s, you're out. Um, (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) That was really arrogant, Jesus. I'm sorry. But I just couldn't handle it. I was like, no, that's just not true. That is not Jesus. No, I refuse and reject. I'm renewing my mind. It's not a one-to-one ratio to make things right. There's not a penance that you have to do the amount of time. So that's just out. And then there were others that argued that this was significant or not significant, that the text moves. And I'm just going to tell you what the text says. How about that? And you can decide. So Jesus says in verse 15, they'd finished eating. And he says, Simon, son of John, do you truly agape me more than these? Now, we talked about agape. That's an unconditional love. That's a love that has nothing to do with behavior and everything to do with identity. I love you because God designed you and breathed life into you and made you uniquely you. That's who you are, that you have value, and there is nothing you can do behaviorally that adjusts or affects my love for you. That's agape love. And Jesus says, hey, do we have that? He says more than these, and people fight about that, but basically Peter was braggadocious, and he's like, hey, I love you more than everybody. And he's like, hey, do we still have that going on? He's speaking Peter's language, right? And then Peter replies and he says, what? He says, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Uh Uh-oh, he shifted there, right? Remember phileo is brotherly love, like Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. Jesus says, yes, Lord, we're bros, right? You know I'm your friend, one translation says. So Jesus says, do you understand that unconditionally I love you with everything to the core of your identity. And he goes, yeah, you know, you know, I know we're friends. Why is that significant? He goes, take care of my sheep. Leave that there for a second. Here's the thing. So my daughter this week, as in yesterday, she discovered something on our TV. She realized you can press that little microphone button and ask for things, right? I didn't know she knew how to do this. So she presses the button. She can't read. She's five. And she goes, Mickey Mouse, because that's what she wants on the TV. So up pops Mickey Mouse. She starts watching Mickey Mouse. I come in the room, and I'm like, oh, how cute. You're watching Mickey Mouse Christmas something. Like, that's weird that that's on right now, but okay, Mickey Mouse Christmas, right? So then I go back uh, to work uh, last night, and I look at my computer, and an email has popped up. and says, thank you for your purchase of Mickey Mouse Christmas. Yeah. So my cheeks started getting red for a second, right? I was like, purchase. Now, let me preface this with, we own that movie. We, now, we, we double own that movie, by the way, to finish the story, right? So there's a moment where I, in my flesh, want to just lose my mind, right? But she's five. So I'm like, Christine, deal with this. <laughs> and so a few minutes later, my daughter comes in to see me and her... Big old crocodile tears for man. I'm sorry, Daddy. I buy things. <laughs> and I got to tell you something. There is no earthly means for her at five years old to make that right with me one to one. She can't earn however much a Disney, probably 40, who knows how many dollars it's to charge you for it, buy a stupid movie. Hopefully she just rented it. I don't even know. The reality is, though, she can't make that right, right? She has no way to even the score with me. But you know what didn't go through my heart is, you got to make this even. What went through my heart was, oh, I love you. I don't love you less because of what you did. I don't love her, whatever, $20 less. I just love her because of who she is. Why do we think that our father in heaven is a worse dad than me? Like somehow when we've blown it, he's like, now you have to make this right. And here's Peter and he's like, God, yes, Lord, you know, I'm your friend. And then we move on verse 16 and he's like, 
Feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, do you truly agape me? He's like, do you truly understand your incredible value? And then Peter responds and he goes, he goes, yes, Lord, you know I'm your phileo. You know that we're bros. <laughs> He's still having a hard time with it. And then I love this because verse 17, it says the third time he said to him, and now Jesus changes the conversation and you completely miss this if you only read it in the, in the, uh, in the English for us. He goes, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? See, he started with agape and agape and then he flips it and he goes, he goes, okay, I get that it's hard for you to accept that you are loved unconditionally in your core just because of who you are. But let me ask you this. Are we friends then? And it says Peter was grieved in his heart because the third time Jesus said, are you my friend? And Peter said, yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I am your friend. And he said, okay, then go back to work. You see, Peter was not being chastised. He was not doing penance. This was not about being reinstated. This is about being reaffirmed. He said, don't get your mind wrong. We're friends. The goal for Jesus is always relationship. And it's always that you know that you're loved. And it's never that you somehow did only the right things and made it wrong if you did the wrong things. That's ridiculous. That's not who Jesus is. And that's not the relationship that he wants with you. And here's the thing. We get stuck because it feels good to have to do penance. We get stuck because it feels fair, come on now, to have to make things right before we go. So we go, oh, there's a dream that I have for my life, but I can't do it right now because I blew it over here or because I haven't got this part of my life together yet or because of whatever it is that's going on in your life. And that is the battle for your mind. And Satan's over there just like, yes, I've got real estate. You're somehow believing that your behavior determines your identity. You're somehow believing that the mistakes that you've made, you're somehow holding on to unforgiveness of yourself or for others and not moving on to the destiny that you have for you. And Jesus is just saying, hey, are we still friends? Then go back to work. Go back to your call. Go back to who I have designed you to be. Your identity is not affected by that. You know, first service, I, uh, I, I pulled out this $50 bill because I didn't have a hundred I wanted to have a hundred and someone brought it to me and said, you can use this. I don't know if they gave it to me or not, but they said I can use it. But here's the thing about this hundred dollar bill, which I'm excited to have in my hand right now because it ain't mine. This hundred dollar bill has value, hundred dollars. And I bet there's not a soul in here who, if I said, Hey, do you want this hundred dollar bill? You'd go, you know what? I only like the old style hundred dollar bills. I only like small head Ben Franklin. I don't like big head Ben Franklin. So I don't want that $100 bill, right? There's nobody in this room who would say, you know what? I have to know that that particular $100 bill was never used in like a drug transaction or was never used for any criminal action. It doesn't have any negative history or baggage connected to it, right? Because statistically, I don't know, when I worked at the bank, they said, just expect that you're getting drugs all over you every time you touch money. Because like, they would just tell you that, right? And I don't know if that was like a wives' tale or what, but they would tell you that at, working at the bank. And so, but none of us would look at that. None of us go, you know what? I only like my $100 bills if they're not all folded up, right? Once they're folded up, I don't really like them. Why? Because the value of this does not change based on the condition that it is and when it presents itself, the value is inherent to what it actually is, what it's made of, right? Your value, come on now. It doesn't change because you've been through some stuff. Your value doesn't change because there's been some mistakes and some mess. I mean, I could throw this thing in a mud puddle, stomp on it, take it out and go, it, everybody wants it still, right? Nobody cares. I can imagine there's some places I put it and you might be like having to make decisions. <laughs> but you'd still take it. You'd still take it. Some of you went really dark on that. That was bad. Come back, the battle for your mind. Come on, come back. That's all you're gonna remember. <laughs> what are we talking about here? Your value is not connected to somehow your behavior accomplishing something for the kingdom that you can be proud of or not proud of. But... God loves you so much. He wants to stay in relationship with you and release you into your destiny. Would you stand with me? We're going to close. I hope 
you never believe that I'm a better father than your father in heaven, that you're a better father than your father in heaven, that you're a better mother than your father in heaven. I hope you never think less of God. Come on now. In the way you would love your own kids. I hope you never get stuck in your thinking, believing that somehow that this whole faith journey is about behavior modification and about you cleaning up your mess. God's not trying to behavior modify you, but he wants that for you. Why? Because he wants you to be free because he loves you. But you're not earning that along the way. You know why he loves you? Do you know why? Why he loves you? Because he does. He loves you because he does. Because you're his and he designed you. And he just loves you. And I love this. The end of the story, I won't go there uh, for time's sake, but the next thing he says to Peter is, oh, by the way, you know, while you're out doing the, the dream, you're feeding my sheep, you know, right now you're going to enjoy that, but eventually you're going to get led the way you don't want to go, and he's telling him you're going to die. And then Peter, because he's Peter, sees John walking behind him. He's like, what about this guy? Is he going to die too? Just making sure I'm not the only one. <laughs> Jesus is like, what do you care what happens to him? As for you, you follow me. Now this is important. What's the first thing he said to Peter? He's fishing. He walks up and he says, follow me. What's the last thing he says to Peter in the whole gospels? Follow me. We've been on a three-year journey. We've gone up, we've gone down. We've gone as high, we've been on the, come on, the Mount of Transfiguration, high as you can go. And we've been down in the, you denied me and I'm on the cross and you're making eye contact with me and as low. And in all of that, my call for you has not changed a lick. The first thing I said to you because of who you are is the exact same thing I'm saying to you today. Just come follow me. You're invited. You're wanted. You can come and be with me in relationship. And that's the whole gospel story. For God so loved the world and gave his only son, whoever believed wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. So, so here's my question. Are you stuck? Have you been stuck in some bad thinking? Have you been losing? Do you even realize you're in a battle for your mind? Have you been stuck thinking the, that, that somehow the sin or the mistakes of your life or the sin or mistakes that someone else made in your life have somehow affected the direction of the trajectory of what you can accomplish in your life? Because that's a lie. Has unforgiveness gripped you? Not able to forgive yourself or forgive someone else because that's Satan's scheme to keep you from moving? Or could you accept that because of his great mercy, in view of his great mercy, you can be transformed by the renewing of your mind and that you're just loved because you're loved and you get to do what he's called you to do. You're not disqualified. There's nobody in the room disqualified. Let me just say that in the microphone again. There is nobody in the room disqualified. You're like, you don't know what I've been through. You're right. But I can feed you truth. Stop feeding your mind that lie. Here's some truth. Nobody's disqualified. The invitation is to come and to follow him. And could you imagine, I just want to dream with you for a second here. Could you imagine if we got a hold of that as a body, as a church, if we started believing that, if it started changing our perspective, if everybody we bumped into, we started thinking not about, come on, what they've done, what they've been through, who they were, whatever things we use. If we started, stop thinking in our own lives. Well, someday when I blank, when I get this together, when I get healthy, when I get it, whatever it is, when I get my finances in order, when I get my life in order, when I get my faith in order, whatever it is, whatever that thing is, when I start living better than I am, when I break out of the addiction I'm in, whatever it is, that's when God can somehow use me. Can you imagine if we started confronting that lie with the truth that you're just loved because you're loved and that in view of his great mercy, you don't have to conform to the patterns of this world, but you can be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you can get a hold of what God's will is, is good, pleasing, and perfect will. Can you imagine the difference that that would make just in this church, just in this group, this group of families, in your family? Can you imagine the difference that would make? Can you imagine the difference that would make in this community if we started believing that and living that way? Can you just imagine, wouldn't that be a much funner journey to go on? Can you imagine we start bumping into people and they're like, you don't know what I've been through. And we're like, sweet, tell me your story, brother. Instead of, ah, I don't want that mess. That would be awesome. So Jesus, here we are, just believing some truth that you don't need to reinstate us because we're not out. Just like you didn't reinstate Peter because he wasn't out. You didn't reinstate him, you reaffirmed him. That's what you did. 
So you want to reaffirm us that you love us, that you care, that you love us with a perfect father's love, that that's available to us and that it's generous and insane and it's great. And not only that, you phileo us, we're brothers. You bring us into relationship and friendship. You like us. God, I don't even like me sometimes. But you like me. You like us. And you invite us to just come back into our destiny, back into our dreams, back into our call. It doesn't change. It was the same the moment you saw us. Maybe it's different in individuals. Maybe that call looks different and works itself out different. And that's the beauty of a body that has many parts. And all of a sudden we start seeing artists and entrepreneurs and servers and God gifted musicians and gifted financial people and gifted coffee makers and gifted greeters and gifted evangelists and gifted prophetic people. And it's just unleashes. Why? Because we stop believing the lie that we have to wait until something else happens to be who you've designed us to be. And we just started believing the truth that you called us, you want us, and you'll move through us. I pray that we'd be free. Those chains would be gone. And we just move in the destiny that you called us to. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.